Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. In my never-ending attempts to bring people to you who can support you in having an amicable divorce, I realize that sometimes you're just going to end up going to court. Or you may be on the verge of saying, no, I think court is the better idea. The judge can come in, make decisions, and we'll just go ahead and abide by them. Towards that end, I have somebody on the program today who's going to give you a peek behind the curtain of what it's like when you're dealing with things like settlement conferences, voluntary or involuntary, or maybe being an expert witness at a trial to determine values of things. And I think it's important for people to know what's coming up so that you can decide whether it's possible to be more amicable so that you can maintain control over your decisions. Catherine Costas is a certified divorce financial analyst, and she is our guest today. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Judith. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so it was so fascinating when we first talked and you said, no, no, I have a a VSC to go to. I'm like, what is a VSC? I have no idea. So that started my thinking, oh, I think this would be an interesting topic. What is a VSC? So a VSC is a, I would say, sort of a hybrid between a mediation where you have someone like you who is completely neutral and a judge in a courtroom who doesn't really care about either one of you too much. He's just there to slice everything in half and enforce the law. A VSC is kind of a middle ground. So what happens with that, you you both have your attorneys, you both have your teams. You've got attorneys, you've got forensics. I'm often in the room as well. I'm looking at the financial planning aspects of your divorce, your cash flow, things like that. So you have your two teams and then you have, we call them rent a judge, which sounds really bad. You hire a judge. <laughs> I know, when I heard the term rent a judge, I actually loved it. I said, that's very funny. Yeah. But it's a private judge. It's actually a private judge. You hire for the day, right? Yes. And these are generally retired family law judges. So they've got years and years of experience being in a courtroom. And different from a mediation, a mediation, again, is a neutral person. They're not allowed to call out the other side. And, And they may say, you know, if you went to court, likely this. A a VSC, the judge is very frank with both sides, right, and is able to say, hey, those numbers don't make sense, or your forensic needs to update this information, or if you were in my courtroom, this is what I would say is going to happen, so you should take this deal. So as I say, it's kind of that hybrid, but but the goal of, of that judge is really to come to an agreement, reach a settlement, for both parties, you you spend a whole day. It's a private event as opposed to, you know, personally, I spent six years on in Hill Street Blues in Los Angeles, right on Hill Street Court. And anyone 
literally anyone can walk into your courtroom during the middle of you discussing your entire financial life, your personal life, whatever it might be. So the other benefit of that VSC is it's a private setting. Okay. A VSC is a voluntary settlement conference. So just to let people know, that's what it is. And it's a voluntary, as Catherine said, a voluntary settlement conference that is not a mediation. It's more of a directive experience by this judge, private judge, uh, to help you craft an agreement so that you don't go to trial. Correct. And then you have to really live by the decisions of the judge in a trial. And what Catherine was saying is if you go to trial, it's not private when you're in the courtroom. Anybody can walk in the courtroom and sit and observe, which was shocking to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's my God, because I did that. <laughs> you want entertainment? That's a good place. <laughs> well, yes. Because so, so many of my friends, colleagues in this business, therapy therapists, mediators, et cetera, said, Judy, you should really go downtown. And when Catherine was talking about Hill Street Blues, the main courthouse for family law in Los Angeles County is on North Hill Street in downtown LA. And so I love when you refer to it as Hill Street Blues, because who the heck wants to go there? Not many people. Um, But yes, so... So I was just going to say the other the other piece with a voluntary settlement conference is you're in a room with your team. So when you're in a court setting and you're you are called up and the judges, you know, spending five minutes looking at your information and sort of spitting back things, you don't have that moment to reach over to me, for example, and say, hey, is this a good settlement? Is this a good idea? Whereas with a VSC, the judge will present this is the other side's proposal. Then and, and I've been doing these on Zoom, then she sort of goes away or or in person goes away. And you have that time to sit with your team and really ask all those questions. Because when you're put on the spot like that, especially in a courtroom, it, it's terrifying. Let's just, I mean, let's be honest. Anytime you walk into a courtroom, we are all just right on edge. So you're not able to take a minute and say, well, wait, but what about in five years? Or what about this? Or what about that? So the other benefit of, the, of that voluntary settlement conference, it gives you that time as much as you really want to say to your team, okay, yeah, I get that, but what about, you know, I had a case of vacation home. They wanted to share time. Okay, well, that sounds good, but how much time? Every weekend, every other week, things like that, that if you were in, just in court, the judge would say, all right, you you are sharing the vacation house, and then you have to figure out how that's going to work, right? So yeah. that voluntary settlement conference is a good a good, like I said, kind of a hybrid, but gives you that time to walk through those decisions or those proposals um, in a more in-depth, detailed way. And a voluntary settlement conference is established by the parties involved. The court doesn't direct this. No, you agree. Both of your teams agree. You choose a judge that is acceptable to both of you. So yes, volunteer. You are both there to reach some sort of settlement. So similar to the idea of the mediation in that you're both, you both really want to figure this out, right? You want to somehow come together with, with the best agreement for both of you. Um, so you, again, it's, it is that collaborative kind of point of view like a mediation but we all have the same goal here right we want to reach an agreement we want to get this figured out yes. um but again bringing in that sort of 
reality check sometimes. I mean, I have heard judges in, in VSCs really kind of say, hey, look, this is the best you're going to get. You should take it, right? <laughs> so you, you can get that very pointed, realistic view of, hey, if you don't get this done here, court is not going to give you anything better. And that's helpful, I think. When you're at these settlement conferences, are you with one party as opposed to the other? You're not there for both parties, are you? Or are you? No, not in a VSC. I am hired by one client. In a mediation, I can be more of the financial neutral, but financial neutral rather. But in a voluntary settlement conference, you really have your own separate teams. Have you been in a situation where there has been an, a, your counterpart on the other side, another uh, certified divorce financial analyst, and you disagree? Um, interestingly, no. <laughs> well, interestingly, <laughs> great. There, there may be a forensic on the other side. Um, there may be uh, a CPA sometimes, just a regular tax advisor. But I'll be honest with you, there's never been another me on the other side. But that's not to say, I mean, I will raise questions about what the forensics are saying, or I will, I will raise questions in general. But what's kind of interesting is because there is no, you know, when when you kind of line up, you've got your opponents, the attorneys against attorneys, the parties against parties, forensic against, and then there's me, Right. And so what's what I find is kind of interesting. I'm able to bring up points in a way that no one feels right off the bat that they have to fight me about it. So what I have seen is actually the other side is a bit more receptive because, again, there's not that natural opposition to me or or obvious opponent. So sometimes it actually is it actually is a good thing. There isn't a direct person exactly doing what I'm doing because for example spousal support right the payor always thinks they're never going to they're going to go broke the recipient always thinks they're never going to have enough well I live in cash flow land so I'm preparing those cash flows saying hey look actually over the next 10 15 20 whatever the time frame is you're going to be able to afford this and you're actually going to be financially better off and the recipient same thing perhaps. So when I can demonstrate that to both sides, that, that can bring down the the fear and, and some of the argument. And, and sometimes we can get to an agreement a little bit more quickly with what I'm presenting because no one else is looking at cash flow. They're looking at a balance sheet. They're chopping in half. They're not writing right. out those numbers to see what's going to be in my pocket. And, and looking at a DISO master that we use in California, there's really no way to figure out what's in my pocket. Right. After right. Expenses, so. And the DISO master for people who don't know is an algorithm system. I call it a software program that we all license if we work in the state of California. I don't know what other states license it. There's got to be others. Uh, and, and it is an objectification for an amount of money for child support and or spousal support. And it's a starting point for negotiation because nobody knows where to start. And I'm so happy this exists um, because I don't, I wouldn't know where to start and the parties don't know where to start. So it's a, it's a great, I think it's a great thing. Do you? 
I think it's a good guideline, no question. But yeah. again, it's it's the data, it's only as good as what you have on the input on the data. And the DISO master, I've actually, in, in some of my groups, we've had people come and really break it down. It is a very detailed computer program. And depending on your inputs, it can very much change. So what it's trying to do is come to an after-tax pot of money that you both have available to the community. And then from there, it's div dividing it up into if you have child support that gets paid out first, then spousal support and so on. So, you know, things like uh, medical premiums or contributions to retirement accounts, property taxes, mortgage interest, all of these things you need to make sure those are in those are entered in, in in an accurate way because it will it will skew the result. But yes, absolutely in general, it's trying to say, okay, after you pay your taxes and all your required expenses like those that are coming out of a paycheck, what do you have left? What is the pot that's available to support this community uh, in two separate households? Other states use a variety of different uh, methods, but I do think I do think the the semester is very helpful um, because it is trying to do that calculation with as much detail as possible to get right. to a number. Catherine, um, where do these conferences take place? Um, usually, well, the last one I was in actually at a forensics office, so either an attorney they. Back before COVID, we do them at one of the council's office. Usually we'd be in two different conference rooms mm -hmm. um, or at a forensic office. Then we went to all Zoom. So we'd have two Zoom rooms or, you know, everybody in different spaces. Dizzying. It's, yeah. it's yeah. crazy and confusing to me, all these yeah. Zoom rooms. Right. But are you back in person again? Is it better in person to do this? I, I think any sort of negotiation, whether you're buying a car or settling a divorce, in person is very important because when you're sitting across from someone and you can see their body language, right? Words are one thing and, and full body language, right? We, when yes. we're zooming from hair up, we're not seeing maybe the, the legs cross or whatever is going on. And I, I'm a huge, um, I, I'm fascinated by body language and reading it and, and bringing that into the negotiation. Um, because you're seeing what is what is a hot button for someone, even if they're not trying to react or what makes them sort of sit back in comfort, possibly. Right. So nice. I like the in-person, but I get it. And, you know, it, depending on distance and, and right. all of that, you kind of have to make it work the best you can. Is it a mutual decision to have a settlement conference? Yes, both parties have to agree to it. They have to agree on the judge that they're choosing. Oh, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Part. And then and they're splitting the costs for the most part. Okay. Um, so it is all it is all again and that's where it's sort of towards that idea of mediation. Both parties and both teams are there to reach an agreement, right? So if you don't have that, at least that basic level of cooperation, or as I say, you know, write your mission statement for this divorce. And and maybe that sounds strange, but I like I like clients to write that mission statement. And generally, when they first start out, it's you know, if you have kids, it's making sure the kids are taken care of and all these things. 
But as things go on, money gets involved, emotions, you lose sight of that mission statement. And now you're fighting about, you know, believe it or not, I actually saw fighting about the leg lamp. Okay, so it's it's coming back to the mission statement. And the VSC allows you to sort of do that with your team. Set your mission statement with your team before you begin. Hey, this is our goal today. We want to get, and maybe it's just a support issue. Maybe it's an asset division. But if you can kind of set that mission statement at the outset and just sort of keep referring to it as you get pulled in different directions emotionally, et cetera. Easy to do, easy enough to do. I don't know if I said this to you when when we met, but I quote this judge a lot because when I read what I'm going to say, it killed me. It was so funny, but it was so poignant. And it kind of fits with the mission statement perspective that that you just mentioned. And the judge is Terry A. Crone in Indiana. And he has been quoted as saying, when I get people representing themselves in my courtroom and they're arguing, it's always about the velvet Elvis painting. Everybody has a velvet Elvis painting in their divorce settlement metaphor, of course. He said, but it's never about the velvet Elvis painting. It's always about the hurt that hasn't been healed before you start the divorce proceeding. And that mission statement that you mentioned, I think is so important. I, you know, I don't do it. I know other people, other of my colleagues do. And one gal in particular, who's both an attorney, a mediator, and a therapist, she considers that extremely important. And with all these three disciplines combined in her, I understand where she's coming from. And now you've said it. It's very easy to forget. And people do say in the mediations, now, wait a minute, come on, we're arguing. We said we weren't going to argue. It's easy to fall into hurt and fall into, whether you know it or not, the reason why the divorce is taking place. And isn't that always the backdrop to the negotiations? Even if it's a no-fault divorce state, it doesn't matter. Well, it matters to the parties. It doesn't matter to the state. Right. Absolutely. But do you find that too? Do you find the hurt can creep in when they least expect it and influence the negotiations at least for a little bit? No question. And and while my job is focused on numbers and financial analysis, I spend a lot of time finding what's the backstory. How did we get here? Um, what's gone on? As much as they're comfortable sharing. And, you know, people will come to me and I always joke that the most important tool I have is the box of Kleenex in my conference room <laughs> because that's what gets used the most. And that's okay. Um, because this is emotional. This is this is difficult. And and there are all these books and statements of treat this like a business deal. There's not a chance. This is not a business deal. This is your life. This is your dreams. This is what you thought your life was going to be at age 80. All of that is wrapped into those numbers. And in, in my other practice, which is regular wealth management, it's not much different. We all have emotional and psychological attachments or, or feelings around our money. So when you get into a situation where there's been a betrayal of trust, whatever that looks like, for example, mm-hmm. um, 
that person is always going to be kind of coming from that place of, look, I've lost trust. And I thought that was a chair until I found out my spouse did such and such. And now I'm not even sure that's a chair, right? Some people have been so completely destroyed in a sense, and their trust has been destroyed. So it's very important for me to know not only my client, but especially the other side, what is important to them? Where, How are they coming into this? What is their dialogue? What are they thinking about this? Because we can't, you really can't separate the two. I can look at the numbers and I can say, okay, here's the best way to slice this pie. And this is what you should do. But behaviorally, in order to get there, I need to understand my client and the other side, or we'll never get there, right? Because yeah. it's it's just not how it works. So no, absolutely. It's it's very important. And divorce is, is a grieving process. And we don't really talk about that. That's the other thing, you know. And my clients say, yeah, my friend's like, oh, let's go celebrate. You have those divorce parties, you know, those big lawn signs you have now. Right. <laughs> and I don't think I've had a client who went out and celebrated. They go home, they pull on, they get under the covers and they just, you know, kind of take a minute to cry and be upset. It's it's really a difficult process. Maybe they don't want to be with that person. That's fine. But the, right. it's really grieving what they thought, right? Yeah. I, I haven't met anyone who said I got married to get divorced, right? That was right. Not, not the goal. Right. Do you so, remember there was a show on Bravo? Oh, golly seven or eight years ago, maybe 10, called Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Oh, yeah. It was only on for two or three seasons, but I thought it was excellent because even in the first, did they try and sign their agreement in the first season? I think the first season ended with the husband and wife, they had lawyers, but the husband and wife had the settlement agreement. And they were supposed to sign it. And they were in the conference room of one of the attorneys and they just couldn't do it right then and there. And they said, let's take a personal moment. Let's get together for a drink. Let's bring this with us and we'll sign it without anybody else around, which I thought was a really heartfelt moment. It stayed with me. They sat there. And they couldn't sign it just yet at that moment. There was nothing else to discuss. All the decisions had been made. And this is something else that all of us in this business need to remember about our clients. And I want the people going through divorce to be aware of this. Very few people bring up the grieving stages in divorce. Certainly financial people don't generally do that, Catherine. And I'm happy that you did because there's... Even if you reached a financial settlement easily, you haven't reached the emotional settlement yet easily or not yet. And you have to settle the emotional divorce before you settle the legal divorce. It just has to be because once you sign your name on that settlement agreement, that's very final. And it represents a lot. Oh, yes. You know, well beyond those the Velvet Elvis painting that you're dividing, right? Yes, that's right. And they attempted in that show in the second or third season to do that party, that divorce party. And I said the same thing as you did. I'm like, I don't know anybody who's really going out celebrating. No. Mm -mm. Yeah, no, it's true. 
As a matter of fact, when I send out the first draft of the settlement agreement to my clients, because I file for both of them, I wonder what it's like on the receiving end when they get the email. What is it like to open that up? Yeah. And how much time do we need to give them to swallow and read this thing? Yeah. Well, I think it I think it's time and resources. And a lot of what I do is bring in resources, therapists or divorce coaches or anything that I see that my client could benefit from having additional team and expertise, right? We we have our friends. Our friends can be lovely, but sometimes our friends try to give us legal advice and that just makes it even more difficult. But I think as professionals, yes, we tend this this tends to be, you know, the widget making in the factory. And we do it so many times. But to your point exactly, you have to give that person time until they're ready mm-hmm. to absorb that. Um and and those feelings last. To this day, I have clients who they've been divorced five years, but if they get an email uh from anything related to that divorce, it'll mm, right in the stomach, right? Yeah. Um it's yeah. kind of a PTSD moment because it it is that strong. That emotion it is so strong. And a lot of times people get stuck um, and they can't move forward. And I think it's important, again, to understand that that's just where they are. They haven't been able to absorb that settlement or, or absorb whatever you've sent them to sign, right? They just, they just can't quite do it. Um, and it makes perfect sense. Uh, it's very understandable. It, it it really is understandable. And any of us who get in this business have to strap in for the ride. Yeah. You know, it's not about, come on, can we move this forward? All the decisions have been made. What are we waiting for? It really can't be that. Because just recently with um, two of my clients, uh, it's been over the past couple of years, very back and forth. Uh, it was very sad in the first meeting, but we were moving forward. There are children involved, so extra care must be taken for for the co-parenting relationship to form. You can't just be go from being parents in the same house to parents in two different homes. It's a different relationship. I, I work with a parenting coach for that reason, and I tell my clients, you can be the best parent in the world, but you've never parented through a divorce. And to your point, it's different. And as the kids age and change, then it's different again. And and I suggest that parents meet with a parenting coach at the beginning of every school year, figure out what is the budget for activities, things like that. But also, where are your kids now? How are they processing what's going on? Is it a preteen? Is it a kid who's about to drive, right? And maybe you got divorced when they were 12. So it's another, again, that resource, that professional expertise. I think a parenting coach is huge. And it's not to say you are not a good parent at all. But as you've just said, you've not parented through a divorce. And that's a whole different thing. There are different, you know, the way kids absorb things that you say about the spouse. It's very difficult. Sometimes it's almost the opposite of what you're thinking it would be. So make sure you get that help on the parenting side um, because it's very difficult and, and it changes every year, right? As the kids change. Yeah. What I say to people as we're putting the parenting plan together, the schedule, I say, so this is good for now. 
get ready for it to change. You won't know until it happens. The kids will change. Something will change in your jobs and that's okay. This is not meant to last forever. So then you, okay, so they're fine. So then you have though the people that just simply aren't getting along. One is reluctantly dragging him or or herself through the divorce process. There's a child and maybe on a good day, they didn't agree as parents. And now they're in two separate homes and uh, one parent will invariably say, I'll do what I want. I don't care what time you say you want him or her to go to bed. I don't care what your thoughts are on video games. I will do what I want to do. Yikes. That's not co-parenting. No, and I think that's where the parenting coach helps you come in and understand. Look, you think you're doing that to get back to your spouse or as a way to demonstrate your autonomy over your spouse. But here's the way your child is processing it. And I think most parents, when they understand that, you know, the the disparaging remarks, right? What I've learned early from my parenting coach, when you disparage another parent, the way your child takes that in as, I love both of you unconditionally. That's how children come into the universe and into the world. So you're telling me this person I love unconditionally is a terrible person. And but wait, I'm half that person. So it it actually becomes very scary and a very negative. The, the kids very much internalize it. They're not saying, yeah, you're right. Mom's terrible. That's not at all what's happening. <laughs> right. So I think understanding having that parent coach say to you, but OK, I know how you're thinking of this and I know maybe where your feelings are coming from. Mm-hmm. But when you understand how the child is processing your behavior, a lot of times and, and sometimes it gives you the uh, permission, you know, you, you may feel like I, I need to stand up and I revenge or whatever it might be that you're thinking is what you're doing. Sometimes it gives you that permission to say, yes, I've been wronged and this is terrible, but I'm doing this this way for my child because now I understand how they are being impacted by my behavior. And that can be very powerful. Yeah. Um, and I find that really helps with those types of situations. Because we we don't really, we're not really great at, at stepping into the shoes of our kids and how they're perceiving what's going on. Right. I don't, yeah, that's very, very hard to do. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, I think really factors into a continuation of this conversation. It's now part financial again. And that is the whole point of dividing things equally and possibly having a spousal support slash alimony piece to make sure the standard of living of both spouses is almost the same going forward, whatever that means. It's so that in the world of co-parenting, one the children aren't living in kind of a destitute area with one parent and a much better environment with another parent, which kind of sets them up to either feel sorry for one parent, feel they have to rescue the parent who isn't living so well. So when you're doing your financial analysis, 
And you're looking at, well, how does half of these assets and debts look like once the tax implications are placed on them? Uh, or, you know, how does alimony or spousal support enable both parents to kind of have the same living conditions? Do you do you do that? Um, something I didn't know about for years. About wait a minute, we could make this half and half on paper, but the tax implications could make it very lopsided once the divorce is final. The, my goal is always two financially stable households, and and just for what you're saying, you don't want the kids eating you know, steak and lobster at this household and and barely surviving on ramen at the other household. So two financially stable households. And generally, most of the cases I'm with, I have a much higher wage earner and a maybe non-wage earner, someone who's been home with the kids, huge disparity in income. So when you're looking at, again, I live in cash flow land of what is the income? What's the money you have in your pocket to pay your bills, buy the food, get the kids new shoes, all of that sort of thing. And, and how does that asset division translate into that, right? And to your point, taxes come into play. Now, division during a divorce, when you're dividing assets, other than a capital gain on the sale of a house, for example, but dividing other assets, there isn't a tax implication at the initial division. But what you do with that going forward definitely can have tax Mm -hmm. implications. So if I have a high wage earner, their concern is is usually less about cash today and and maybe they're more focused on the retirement. Whereas my non-wage earner, their biggest priority is what can I get my hands on cash-wise? Because the reality is if that spouse passes away, is disabled, somehow that income goes away. Yeah. Now they need to have a safety net to feed, clothe, and shelter. And that can happen, right? So right. It is, it's very much how can we creatively slice up these assets so that in terms of cash flow and 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 being able to continue for all the what ifs, you know, I'm I'm kind of risk is sort of what I'm looking at. That's kind of my job, right? So I have to bring up these things. Well, you know, people in their 40s and 50s much more likely to be disabled than to pass away. Well, the problem with that is if you're disabled, you lose your income, but you have as many or more expenses. If you pass away, your expenses are done, right? <laughs> so if you're disabled, one of the values of passing away, yes, <laughs> exactly. One of the good things, anyway. So I'm always looking at that. Can we have disability insurance? You know, what are what are ways we can protect both sides? But yes, because what happens if if you do have one one household that is financially unstable, unstable, it can it can actually impact generations. And what I have seen, if the mom, for example, has no money is and the kids end, end up taking care of mom or something like that, those kids may not go to college. That impacts their well-being and their children. I mean, it's a it, it, it's a huge potential ripple effect. And that's another part of sort of when I'm working, especially with a couple on the mission statement is we're, we're not just talking about you two. We're talking about your kids, grandkids, et cetera, because however this gets settled can actually impact a long way down the the generational chain if you will so very important to have that again that stability and have the safety nets depending on who which financial position each person is in and and we can really do a lot of creative things that's the good news um 
kind of lastly, what what you just mentioned was, and I was thinking about this earlier, the people that you work with are fairly high net worth or they have accumulated maybe lots of assets. I mean, I, I know of a couple who school teachers all their lives, but they knew how to invest well. So what they had was much more than most school teachers would have because they invested well. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, when you're doing these voluntary settlement conferences, since we started the conversation like that, what, what net worth category do people fall in for this? Usually for a, a VSC situation, it is a bit higher net worth. Seven no figures, definitely, or high yes. six. Yes, because again, the cost of that day and the complexity, right? A lot of times mm -hmm. more zeros, more money, more problems, right? More complexity. Um, I want but, those problems, by the way, but keep going. Those zeros. <laughs> But I'll tell you, my personal practice, I have an hourly rate that I do my divorce pl financial planning with, and, and it's not super expensive, and that's on purpose, because I want to be able to work with that client. Maybe they don't have a lot. They are teachers. They're going to have a good pension at some point. Maybe right now there's not a lot. I can spend an hour or two with those people and really change and 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 set them on a much better course, have a much bigger impact. Mm. So. My personal practice is, again, the hourly rate. So whatever sort of level of wealth, I can spend a lot of time or a little time up to, you know, a couple hundred million dollar of a an estate to divide and, and really everything in between. But, I, and, you know, as I told you, I went through a six year divorce myself. I've now worked through hundreds of divorces. And, and my goal is to share this information, share this knowledge, share this experience of all of those other situations to help anybody that that it might help because it does have this huge impact and and there's nothing more rewarding honestly than walking with someone through this process and seeing how well and how amazingly well they can do at the end and and their kids and maybe that new family looks different but it it can work there's light at the end of the tunnel and being able to kind of walk someone through there with this literal this little collateral damage along the way right as we yes. possibly can have yes. um there's nothing better than that reward um at the end of it all um and yes and even if you're regular net worth, but you have some property and you have some retirement and the decisions are still very important, Absolutely. just to have somebody like you come in and say, I'm going to show you what I believe is the best that can happen for you. And then this is how to allocate funds. This is how to budget. This is where to invest. It really gives you a huge sense of empowerment, doesn't it? And confidence going forward. Yes. And again, that's back to that. This process, you tend to lose trust. A lot of people lose their trust in themselves, in yes. their gut, in their instinct, right? Into mm -hmm. how did I get here? I didn't see this coming. This wasn't my plan. I don't know how all of those things yeah. start to come up, right? So yeah. yes, knowledge is power. And and it's a lot of, um, I, I use the terminology, I'm giving them permission to use the power they have. I'm not giving them the power. I'm giving them the permission to use it, to, to re-build uh, that trust in themselves again. Because most of the time they have that, 
power within them. But for one reason or another, it's sort of been quieted down, pushed to the side. They've been told they don't have it. Um, but by educating them, this is what you have. This is how it works. Here are the taxes. Here's all that sort of stuff. Yes, you see people sort of go, ah, I, I can do this, right? I feel yes. like I can do this. Yes. That's the best thing. Yes. And people do need help on understanding money. Everyone does. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, it's the thing that makes the world go round. It's the thing that quite often people understand the least is what to do with money. And it's crazy. I always say, why are we supposed to be born knowing what the stock market is? It's ridiculous, right? And all of this. You have and, to and learn. The financial industry, we have our own vocabulary and terminology and all stuff. And that's fine. So do electrical engineers or rocket scientists. But not all of us are building rockets. But all of us are managing our money, right? So yes. the fact that we have all this, you know, initials for things and letters and all this Fancy stuff to me is kind of crazy. So my goal is really let's break this down. Let's educate. This is this it doesn't have to be so scary and and yeah. seem like it's so complicated. Yes. Um, and we should all have the, that basic knowledge. Um, and one from from one way or another, right? And we will, and they will, when you tell everybody how they can get in touch with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I have a, actually, if you just Google my name, Kathy Costas, you will come up with um, my LinkedIn page. I have articles. I have podcasts like with you um, yes. that are out there. My firm is EP Wealth Advisors. Uh, you can go to our main site and type in my name and you'll get my information there. Um, my email is kcostas at epwealth.com. Um, so people do find me. It's very interesting. I have people that find me. I met you eight years ago and now I'm going through a divorce. Oh, yeah. And I need to cash in on that. Exactly. It's very um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. This has been great. I've enjoyed thank listening you. to you talk and, and speaking with you. Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. And I love what you're doing in the world and helping people navigate this process in, in the best way possible. So I, you're a wonderful resource for folks. And um, I love that you're doing these podcasts because right, it, it's getting that information to the person yes. who needs it today. Right. Yes. And even if we did a, a an episode like this a couple of years ago, people, the audience changes, you know, as Absolutely. you go through. And I think it's it's always important to revisit this. But we never did a voluntary settlement conference on the show. <laughs> so that was something new for today. So thank you very much, Catherine. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening. Uh, please provide comments on this if you like. I love that. Please provide ideas for other shows. I always uh, take people up on their suggestions for shows. Uh, uh, refer your friends to this. Subscribe if you haven't, if you just stumbled upon this for the first time. But as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else. 